Hello and welcome. This is uh, episode 63 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. I'm Ben Olson in Washington, D.C., and with me, as always, is Nathan Fox. How's it going, Nathan? Very good. I'm in Los Angeles. Your Washington Nationals are coming to town next week to play the Dodgers, and uh, this probably doesn't mean anything to you, but Monday night, I'm going to go see Clayton Kershaw versus Steven Strasburg, which is... uh, like the two best pitchers in the National League going head-to-head at Dodger Stadium. So that should be pretty exciting. Good times. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. Um, So if they're the best pitchers, I don't really follow baseball, but does that mean there won't be that many hits? Correct, which for a, like, baseball, lifetime baseball fan like me, that's, like, the best thing there is is a low-scoring baseball game. Because they're fast, the games don't take nearly as long. Kershaw's just in there striking everybody out, and Strasburg pretty much the same. So uh, you get a lot of quick one, two, three innings, and you know the game gets over in two hours and fifteen minutes or something like that, which is plenty. You've been to a baseball game, and uh, you don't have to sit there for four and a half boring hours. Yeah, yeah. So when the Giants came out to D.C., uh, we went with uh, my family and. I'm a Giants fan, but my wife is a Nationals fan, so I don't know. That doesn't have a whole lot of connection to the Dodgers and the Nationals, but I would probably, I don't know who, I'd probably have to go for the Dodgers just because they're from California, but I imagine there's some rivalry between the Giants and the Dodgers, but I wouldn't know. I'm just Giants-Dodgers is a huge rivalry, and um, well, Giants-Nationals, that sounds good too because those are two first-place teams, so that's exciting. Well, that that's news to me. So, <laughs> wait, are the Nationals in the fir- in first place? I have no idea. They should be. They are, I think, the best team. Um, wait, hold on. Now we have to give the listeners a live update. I'm sure they're going to be excited to hear this news. Uh, yeah, Nationals in first place. W- really? Wow. By a Maybe solid I margin. Be more, in, uh, but I thought the the Giants. They're not doing. Are they doing well? Giants are in first place in the National League West. National League, uh, Nationals are in first place in the National League East. Oh, wow. And the yeah. Cubs are the best team in the National League. They're in first place in the NL Central, which is exciting. The Cubs are really, really awesome. This could be the year for the Cubs. Okay. Well, good to know. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just mainly a fan out of loyalty to my home uh, hometown, I guess you could say. I'm not really from San Francisco, you know that. But yeah. I was there... I did live through the uh, Loma Prieta quake. Uh, I hope I'm saying that right. I do remember that day, and that was when we had you know the Giants and the A's going against each other. So that was pretty fun. Yeah, I remember that too. Uh, we had an earthquake here the other night. The other day, I got woken up at like 1 a.m. Uh, for an earthquake that I think it was down in San Diego-ish, but uh, it was shaking enough to wake me up. It was exciting. Wow. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, so we have a lot of exciting stuff on the show today. We have uh, a book recommendation that I got from one of my students, as well as a podcast recommendation. Also, uh, several emails from listeners that we'll go through, some just humorous stories and some questions. And then, as usual, we will cover a logical reasoning question from the June 2007 LSAT, which you can download just by searching for that. And we're doing the last question in section two. So finally, section two has been conquered. Um, what, maybe five hours of discussion later? It's probably five hours of discussion stretching over a year and a half. 
Yeah. <laughs> or no, actually more like two years because we started doing it sort of right away, didn't we? At the beginning of the podcast, which was two years ago now. Uh, yeah, let's see. I have it. You wrote it down here, right? Yeah, yeah. Episodes, uh, oh, episodes, well, well, questions one through four were tackled between episode one and episode 39. Yeah. <laughs> no, we don't know where, where questions one, two, three, and four live, but I did start writing them down in episode 40. We did mm-hmm. questions five and six, and then okay. I know every I know every question from then on what episode it's in, but I don't know where one through four are. Maybe yeah. one of our super fans out there will send us an email and let us know exactly what episode each one of those June two thousand seven questions. Is yeah, in. Get, yeah, get us in line here. We we need help. We do um, need help. So this is yeah. If you've been waiting uh, with bated breath to get through this section and finally take the LSAT officially, uh, we're proud to announce that you'll be able to do that after this episode. So <laughs> Yeah, and in two more years, we'll get the other uh, logical <laughs> reasoning section done. That's right. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay, so yeah, I let, let's jump into this uh, recommendation. It turns out that this started with, uh, unless you had anything else to say, I didn't mean to, to cut you off. No, onward. Okay, so uh, the other uh, night in class, this was before the uh, June test, which just happened. We were taking uh, a test in class, and one of the reading comp passages was about a high performance. This is in a a recent LSAT. It's about uh, exceptional performers in chess, in music. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's a great – I love the passage because – I think it's actually all true from what I do understand. And when I finished that class, I went home and uh, one of my students emailed me some links to an NPR article about high performance and uh, what seems to lead people to perform well. This passage, by the way, is just basically about the question, is this is this high performance coming from innate talent or is this high performance coming from lots and lots of practice or both or something along those lines? And she sent me some, the student sent me some articles about high performance and the research that's been done on it recently. And some of those articles led to a book about grit by Angela Duckworth. Have you heard of that book? I don't know that I have. Is it called Grit? It's just called Grit, yep. Okay. And, and it has a bunch of arrows on the cover if you search for it. But it's Grit by Angela Duckworth, and I've just started listening to it. I'm about halfway through, so I got it as an audio book, uh, and I listen to it while I commute. But it is it's just a, it's an excellent book. It, it reiterates a lot of things that I've observed throughout the years of teaching the LSAT. At the same time, it's enlightened me in so many ways about things I hadn't tried or pursued and I'm excited to implement some of this stuff in class but I think to myself as I'm listening to this this is the kind of book that test takers I think would benefit from extremely because they would it would help them realize uh, what it takes to do well and maybe some of the self-defeating thoughts that they can have or the beliefs that they have just to illustrate what I'm saying one thing that she likes to hit home is that success is a matter of innate talent, but it is also hugely a matter of effort. And we've talked about this on the show a lot, but just hearing someone talk about that who has researched it and looked at hundreds of studies and conducted her own studies and talks about them, it sort of 
solidifies your belief that that is true, that the effort component of your work is a huge component and that if you keep putting in that effort, uh, you can make progress. And then a big portion of the book is also about the kind of effort that you should be putting in. And I think we've talked about this a lot as well, the idea of really reviewing the tests you take, uh, really trying to understand the questions you got wrong, as opposed to just taking test after test after test and not really thinking about it, right? There's this, there's a certain amount of effort you can put in, but you want to put in also good effort, which she calls deliberate practice. And that's a term of art, I think, that a lot of people in this field use. But the point here is that this book is, I think, motivating and can be very informative for people who are trying to do really well on the LSAT, which I'm assuming is a lot of our listeners. And so I would recommend it. It's just Grit by Angela Duckworth. Cool. Yeah. Sounds good. So uh, the same student, a week later or so, emailed me another recommendation, which I absolutely love. It's a little bit more of a tangent, but it's... uh, the podcast is called The Art of Manliness. Have you ever heard of that? Uh, no. Okay. I had never heard of it either, but it's The Art of Manliness, and it's episode 202, which is, let's see here, what's the exact title of this episode? How Bad Do You Want It? And it's about um, what endurance athletes do uh, to push themselves harder and further. And although it has a lot to do with working out, uh, it definitely can translate over into how you think about uh, your studies and how much effort you're putting into what you're doing and how much of when we give up is mental and not actually physiological. So a lot of times people think that they're feeling tired and that they should stop because their body just can't go any further. And it's actually the person who's being interviewed on the podcast is someone who has just written a book about the research that's being done on the psychology of sort of giving up. And this is all in an athletic context, but I think it still applies to so many other things in the sense that a lot of times we're giving up and it's the mind that's telling us to give up, even though the body has more left in it that it can do. And he just walks through some of the studies they've done to sort of trick people into doing more and proving that, yeah, they actually had a lot more energy in them, but they just felt like they didn't. So anyways, it's a great podcast. I'm about halfway through that, too. It's just uh, podcast 202 on the art of manliness. Interesting. Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. So, yeah, that's all. That's my suggestions. That's, and, it's a nice counterpoint to me always telling people to give up. So that's perfect. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I don't think you're telling people to give up, are you? Well, um, I do frequently say that uh, I think persistence is in some ways overrated. Um, like, let me give you an example of when I think persistence is overrated. Is just uh, when someone says to me, you know, I've spent so much time now studying for the LSAT that uh, I just have to go to law school now. Okay. Yeah. That's you know, the... like, or like they've been studying for three months for the LSAT. They haven't really made the progress that they want to make. They are questioning whether this is the right path, but they're just like, yep, I'm going to keep doing it because I've come this far and I don't, I'm not a quitter, so I'm going to keep going. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's when I usually say, well, I don't know. I mean, I have like the happiest career of anybody I know. And the reason why I got here is because I quit like 
20 other things that weren't working out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I'm sure that there's, you need a balance between those two, right? You need to decide what it is that you really want to do and then persist in those things. Yeah, and in fact, she does talk about that. She talks about persistence when it comes to high-level goals as opposed to mid-level or low-level goals. So she says people who are gritty or persistent uh, don't give up on high-level goals, but they may give up on mid- or low-level goals if those goals aren't helping them achieve that higher end. She's saying that people uh, who aren't gritty, though, on the other hand, are more likely to give up on high-level goals. So they they may want to do one thing or pursue some end and then feel like, oh, this is too hard, and then just jump to a totally different pursuit. And I guess it it... it in some ways, I think what you two are saying sounds very similar to me. If if you really want to become a lawyer, then you should dig in. But if you are just doing this because you see yourself as a persistent person, but maybe law isn't the right fit for you, then you're not really looking at the high-level goal. You're just looking at, I don't know, like some characteristic of yourself as opposed to what you're actually trying to achieve in the long run. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, cool. Well, let's take a look at some of these letters. Sure. Uh, do you want to tackle this first one? Sure. It says, Ben and Nathan, I completed the June LSAT earlier today, and I just wanted to send you both a wholehearted and well-deserved thank you. I stumbled on your podcast several months ago. Admittedly, I walked away for a while after the rather involved replace-a-rule conversation. <laughs> But I rediscovered it in April, and I'm so glad I did. Remember that, Ben, when we argued about the replacer rule question? Yeah, that was in episode one, right? It might have been, yeah. It was way, way at the beginning. Imagine how many more listeners we would have if we hadn't just argued like that in the very first episode. <laughs> we could we could go back and like put a little insert in there, say, hey, this is Nathan and Ben from 2016, and it gets better. Yeah, we really do love each other. We're not like fighting. We're not going to get a divorce. Um, Okay. In the past six to seven weeks, I've trucked through 60 Thinking LSAT episodes at work, on the go, in bed, in the shower. I just couldn't get enough of you two. Um, Thanks. I'm blushing. After today's test, I can say with the utmost sincerity, I hope I never have to hear your voices again. Though I still do have one question for Nathan. On logical reasoning, should I read the question stem first? Uh, He's winking there when he says that. Uh, Yeah, no, you should not. Okay. In all seriousness, I found all of your advice tremendously helpful. Nathan, your test day attitude strategy was particularly helpful today. I took the test in the classic LSAT room, a stuffy classroom with the tiny folding arm desks. A lot of people grabbed two desks since they were so small but they kept bringing more and more people, there were 40 plus, and the desks were in short supply. Finally, the site director came in and yelled, there's nothing in the rules that says you can have two desks, so if you have two, give one up. Predictably, people started to freak out, but I just leaned back and soaked it all in. Once we were settled, my test neighbor asked if he could grab a leftover desk that was next to me, and I must have been channeling my inner Nathan because I said to him word for word, sure, You need it more than I do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I probably would not say that out loud. I would say that on the podcast, but I would not say that to another human being. (laughs) I would think it, but I would not say that. Okay, anyway. 
Best of luck, kind regards, Mike. Um, I wanted to read this email because I really liked that thing about the giving up the extra desk. I had another email from an, another, I don't know if it's a podcast listener or just another student, totally freaking out about the small desks, totally freaking out about the overpacked testing room. And um, it's unfortunate, you know, I, I think your mental state has a lot to do with how you uh, experience these things. And so, you know, what Mike did here very successfully was just to realize that that's the situation, that's the reality, and it's like that for everybody, and then just kind of roll with it. And it, it even sounds like Mike might have got a little psychological boost here, right? Because he's mm -hmm. looking around the room and he's seeing everybody else freaking out. <laughs> he's magnanimously giving away the extra desk, you know, to say, oh, yeah, sure, no problem. Go ahead. You, 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 you take that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't need it kind of thing. Um, so anyway, I thought, I thought that was a, a nice little moment. I'm glad we could uh, help there. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think it uh, <clears throat> is exactly like what you've suggested before, which is to just pause and wait for a few seconds. I think there's a, a rush to get into the test, and you have to put things in perspective. If you pause for a few seconds and don't frantically jump into the test like everyone else, you're saying to yourself that you're in control, and you are in control, and those 10, 15 seconds aren't going to matter. That desk isn't going to matter. What's going to matter is what do you do when you read that first question? What do you think about it? What do you think the answer is? And stuff like that. Yeah. You can't control the, the circumstances, but you absolutely can control the way you respond to those circumstances. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's another letter. It says, Ben and Nathan, I wanted to reach out and say thanks for the podcast. My prep started with listening to your podcast three hours a day or so. I had a brutal commute, and I managed to listen to about 57 of them in three months. I learned a lot about the LSAT and law school in general. <laughs> what do you think about that, Ben? Can you believe that people <laughs> listen to 57 hours? <laughs> or, well, no, it's not 57 hours. It's like 57 times one and a half hours. Oh, <laughs> so, wow. Yeah, I can imagine that's why this guy... The guy before said he doesn't want to listen to us any again, ever again. <laughs> yeah. that, I wouldn't want to listen to myself. I can't even listen to these podcasts, right? I mean, yeah. you don't either, right? I very rarely listen to them. I, I wish I did um, just because I would probably be able to pick up a lot of things that I'm doing wrong and do do them better. But no, I mean, I, I do you have that thing where you don't like hearing your own voice? It's not as bad as it used to be, but... It's just sort of painful to listen to something we've talked about, and you just get bored. Yeah, it's a little boring, and and hearing mistakes too. So actually, it would be really helpful if people could just shoot us emails and say, "Stop saying um" and "Stop sounding like an idiot." That would be somewhat <laughs> useful because most of our emails are very positive, right? People say yeah. thanks and stuff, and I'm sure they're they're listening to the content and they're ignoring our tangents and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, any constructive feedback would be super helpful. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that applies to everything, to my, my books. You know, I get people that email me like, hey, I don't want to be an asshole, but, um, you know, on page 100, there's this just obvious typo. And it's like, no, God, that's not an asshole at all. That's the best thing you possibly could do, you know, to tell me that so that I can go fix it. Yeah. So, sure, yeah, if you got suggestions for the podcast, we are all ears. A little about me. 
I am 32. I have a master's degree in philosophy, undergrad in psychology, 13 years of work experience in a substance in substance abuse at drug and alcohol treatment centers. That's interesting. Uh, law was always something I was considering. Blah blah. Da, da, da. Oh. This is why I wanted to read this email. I took the June 2009 LSAT and got a 159 with no prep whatsoever. I read somewhere, quote, you can't study for the LSAT. So I didn't. <laughs> what do you think about that? That's hilarious. I guess I've heard that before, but I haven't heard that recently. I think that's just something that comes up not only for the LSAT, but for even for IQ tests, which is not true. People's IQ goes up in college. So just know that's stupid. You can improve almost anything about yourself. Sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, maybe not what, your height? Your height. Sorry. Yeah. Well, even then, start eating healthier or something when yeah. you're young. Yeah. If when you're young, you can, I suppose, huh? Well, yeah, you know, heights have gone up dramatically. I mean, it's a little bit yes. of a tangent, but it's because of our nutrition and we're doing eating better and stuff like that. But, yeah. okay, that's a little ridiculous. But, yeah, yeah, cognitively, you can improve. Yeah, and, I mean, the LSAT is just such a learnable test. So the fact that this – there's just so much bad LSAT advice out there. It's crazy how much bad LSAT advice there is. And this is one of those things. I mean – you can't study for the LSAT. And imagine if this student, you know, fortunately, the letter goes on and says timing wasn't great on the law school thing at the time, so I put it on the back burner and continued working. I mean, thank God, because this student got a 159 on the June 2009 LSAT. By the way, Ben, June 2009 LSAT, what's on the June 2009 LSAT? Do you remember? No, test 59, that's what that is. Is it test 59? I don't know. June 2009 is notorious for one thing. Oh, is this, well, it was test 57. Uh, sorry, I only know the test numbers for some reason. Yeah. Uh, the dinosaur game, no? Yeah, June 2009 was the mauve dinosaur game. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah, and many, many people just completely crashed and burned on that, sec on that section and then, you know, let that poor section just infect their performance on the rest of the test because they just thought the mob dinosaurs was, was so impossible, yeah. um, which it was a difficult game. But anyway, 159 with no prep whatsoever is an awesome starting score. And um, yeah, here, here we go on. Uh, I found your podcast in late February and started reading and prepping. My initial diagnostic was a one, well, I guess this is on the, on the re-prep now or where he actually starts prepping. My initial diagnostic was a 156, but my last five practice test average is a 169 with my most recent test, a 172. That was on the September 2015 test. Wow. But, you know, that's not, I mean, it's, yeah, it's wow, because it's a life-changing amount of improvement. 159 to 169 is a, you know, completely different candidate in the eyes of the law schools. Mm -hmm. But it's not a wow in terms of like, oh, I can't believe you improved that much. Right? 10, ten points? Go, oh, go yeah. from no prep, 159, to a after prepping, getting a 169 average? Yeah. That's like mundane almost. I mean, we expect that students will be able to improve by 10 points and frequently more. So that's uh, totally in line with what we would expect. And, you know, at a, 
at certain law schools, the 159 is not getting in, and the 169 is going to get a full ride. So that is, uh, a, yeah, literally a life-changing amount of improvement on the LSAT. Mm-hmm. I started with the PowerScore books, but found the timed sections daily advice that you guys constantly say to be very helpful. Since March, I have taken 20 tests, and I have one more that will get me through this weekend, then on to the big show. Does that mean, oh, did we get this email right before the June test? I think so. Must must have been. Okay. So, well, I hope it turned out well. Blah, 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 blah. I don't really have any questions. Going to go have a beer, take my time sections this weekend, and enjoy test day. Just wanted to say that your podcast was pivotal to my improvements on the LSAT and enlightened me to the entire law school admission process. Ah, that's nice. So that's Jeff, soon to be in, it sounds like, Atlanta. He wants to go to Emory. So hmm. that's excellent. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for listening. Um, thanks for the email. And uh, yeah, I think this is going to turn out a lot better uh, because you did not go to law school uh, in 2009 with your 159. You're going to look a lot better with a 169. Yeah. Um, one thing he said here, he said uh, the timed sections daily advice. Uh, yep. In other words, referring to our advice to take one timed section uh, every day that you yep. can and mm-hmm. review it thoroughly. He said that he found that to be very helpful. In this book, Angela Duckworth talks about the spelling bee uh, winners and uh, the runner-ups. And she said that based on studies of them and some other high performers, most people can only study intensely, which is the best kind of studying where you're really trying to go after what you suck at because that's what you will then improve as opposed to going after what you already know how to do. In any case, uh, you can really only do that sort of intense studying for about an hour before you need a break. And so I think sometimes people have to study on the weekend because their life is pretty busy during the week. But if you can get four hours over four days, I think that's going to be better for most people than doing four hours all in one day. It's like twice as good. Uh, I mean, I would prefer four hours, one hour a day. I feel like I'd rather have, yeah, I mean, I potentially would rather have two one-hour sessions than one four-hour session. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that for sure, but it's not far off. Mm -hmm. Because the quality of that one hour is going to be so much better than the than the four hours. You know, the other thing people, people just can't find four hours to intensely actually study. Yeah. Right. They think they're doing it, but they're actually checking their phone every once in a while or daydreaming, or they're in a place where they keep getting interrupted by kids or pets or whatever. Mm-hmm. People with their pets, man, I, I can't believe people let their pets like interrupt them while they're trying to do things. You know, it's, it's just, you're not, you're not actually doing it. So I would much prefer that you just leave the house if you have to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if your cat's going to be jumping on your head while you're trying to study for the test, um, you might need to leave and go somewhere where you can actually do it. Yeah. And do a 35-minute section. You know, put your earplugs in. Put your headphones on. Make sure that there's no distractions at all. Put your phone in airplane mode. Do the 35-minute section for 35 minutes. And then ruthlessly review your mistakes it's interesting that you say the duckworth book talks about that yeah 
she she talked they they studied uh, these spelling bee winners and they and the and the losers and they looked at um, how much time they studied and then they broke their study into three different kinds of studying so one was just reading for fun another was um, taking quizzes and the third was going after learning new words that were very hard for them based on the results from the quizzes. So basically she said that the people who spent the most time doing that third option, going after words they don't know, uh, which they also identified as the most excruciating type of study, mm-hmm. uh, were the ones who did the best. So quantity definitely matters. All the high performers who ended up in the semifinals did a lot of studying, a lot of prep, but the ones who won and or at least got to the very top uh, ranked in order was highly correlated which how, with how much studying they did of the stuff that they suck at. And I think that people sometimes, you know, you're studying for the LSAT and I say, here, go do these games and here, go do this LR. And they come back and they're like, well, I did the LR because the games are kind of hard for me. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's understandable because you want to do things that make you feel good. Sometimes at the end of class, people are like, well, this class sucked because I got most of them wrong. Well, it's like, well, that was a good use of your time then. Because yeah. if you did a bunch of questions that you got right, you'd feel good about yourself. But all you're really doing is saying, this is what you're good at. We need to know what you're not good at. So I think assessments are valuable to tell you what you should focus on. But then you need to take advantage of that and go after it with a vengeance. Yeah. I really don't like that blind review thing that some people do where they do a test and then like redo the entire test. Yes, I agree. I, what is the point of that? I, I, I just, it, se- it just <laughs> it's seems not a so, good use of time. No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It just seems so inefficient to me. I don't know why you wouldn't just review your mistakes. I mean, well, yeah, I think it's popular because uh, I think that's what they suggest at Seventh Sage. I'm not 100% sure about that, so I probably shouldn't say that. But I, I think that's what they push there. And um, I, I agree with the idea of blind review for the questions you weren't sure about and the ones that ultimately end up getting wrong. But spending time on, well, yeah, I mean, you can only do it for the ones you're not sure about because you wouldn't know it if you got it wrong until you graded it, and that's the whole point of blind review. But yeah. doing it for the whole section, like question one, and you read it, and it's like the easiest question on the planet, and then you're going to read it again and be like, yeah, I got yeah. that right. Yeah. It's just stupid. I feel like if you just only review your mistakes, it's maybe it's only 90% as good as reviewing the ones you weren't sure about and your mistakes. But it's like so much more efficient because you're going to only be – you're going to only be reviewing the ones that you actually missed, you know, and just then when you review it, make sure you don't know what the right answer is. Review it yeah. without the right answer in hand. That's the kind of blind review that I that I like. Yeah, I agree. But I think it's tough when if you know you got that question wrong and you happen to I mean, in a lot of cases, people remember what they chose. So then you're sort of crossing out an answer that, you know, yeah is wrong and now you're left with the probably the one other answer that was tempting so sometimes yeah. especially for higher performers i think it can be defeating but i think for people who are just starting out that's where that's probably the most efficient thing because they're getting the vast they're getting a lot wrong anyway so that's going to take a lot of time to go through them and so to minimize the number that you review just review the ones you got wrong and you probably don't even know where to start, right? It's like you look at a question like, well, I thought it was D. I 
I mean, what, what should I do? How should I yeah. think about this? And then you just have to know that, nope, it's not D and here's why. Yeah. Well, you need to know. Yeah. I mean, so the questions that I would ask if it was a tutoring session, you know, like, okay, so we missed this one. So let's dive into the argument. Let's talk about the argument. Let's see if we can figure out, you know, there's probably the reason why you missed it is probably because it's just something about the argument that you didn't quite grasp, right? So there was a, there was a hole here that you didn't see. Yeah. Let's talk about that first. But then when we get into the answer choices, it's, why is the wrong answer, the one that you picked, why did you pick that if you can figure that out? And mm -hmm. and why is it not right? What's wrong with this? When you find, well, and then the other side of that is that when you find the right answer, it's like, okay, you didn't pick this answer. Mm -hmm. Do you remember why you didn't pick this answer? Yeah. And then can you tell me now why it's actually right can you tell me why the right answer is better than the answer you picked mm -hmm. that's the kind of review that i feel like leads to actual understanding of the problem yeah no i asked the same questions and i do think it's interesting that uh so many people what they really want to know right off the bat is hey why is d right and then sometimes it's like yeah. i start talking through it like well what do you think about the argument what do you think the conclusion is what do you think's wrong here then it's like they kind of then they come to see they're like oh yeah okay i see why d is right and then they're so and, and this is not to be critical of anyone this is just how everyone does it but they're sort of like okay great i understand why d is right uh my next question is 13 it's yeah. like wait a sec you picked a why did you <laughs> yeah. pick a and sometimes they're like they're, they're kind of surprised you know they're like uh yeah um let's see and it's like i don't know this is a stupid answer now that i think about it it's yeah. like well can okay great it is i'm glad you see that it's stupid now but can you remember what you were thinking because if we can figure out that then we can figure out what step you missed that led you to that conclusion and sometimes it goes all the way back to the fact that they actually had a slightly twisted or distorted view of what the conclusion was. And so, but if you don't ever realize that, then you don't know where to fix the problem in the first place. Yeah. I mean, you'll figure it out eventually, but anyways, yeah. So good questions. I agree hundred percent. Cool. <laughs> great. Should we move on? Do you think? Yeah. Okay, great. So this is from, Taylor. Taylor says, Hi, Nathan and Ben. I hope you're both doing well, and thanks for taking the time to read my message. I just got back from a two-week hiking trip in Spain. Sounds awesome. Right before the trip, I decided I was going to take the LSAT, so I downloaded a bunch of Thinking LSAT episodes and listened to them periodically as I hiked. I like to listen to podcasts when I hike, too. Hmm. Um, the day after I got back to the U.S., I took my first practice test and scored a 160. Overall, I'm fairly encouraged by this starting score, but I'm concerned about one aspect. Reading comp is by far my weakest section. My section scores were logical reasoning minus 2, logical reasoning minus 2, logic games minus 7, reading comprehension minus 14. I'm encouraged by my starting points in logical reasoning and logic games, but the reading comp score is really dragging me down. I've frequently seen it stated that reading comprehension is the most difficult section to improve, some people say impossible, because I'm reliant on a skill that has developed over years of practice. So my questions are, one, is a considerable reading comprehension score improvement achievable 
in three months? Two, do you often see your students improve drastically in reading comprehension? Three, how would you suggest a self-study student practice reading comprehension with three months before the test? What are the best reading comprehension resources? Maybe just leave it there and answer these questions. Sure. So one, is considerable RCA score improvement achievable in three months? Yes, for sure. Yeah. I think so. What do you think? Well, <clears throat> I would say especially in uh, Taylor's case. Okay. Yeah. But based on her, uh, wait, actually her? Yeah, I'm going to say her. I don't know. Taylor could go either way, but I'm going to say her. Um, based on her profile on this one test, I feel like it's impossible to get minus two on two separate logical reasoning sections. Yeah, that's really good. And then that's really, really good for a starting spot. That is really good. And um, I mean, geez, that's really good almost for a finishing spot, right? <laughs> like you could score 170 <laughs> with that. Yeah. I, I feel like the huge discrepancy between logical reasoning and reading comprehension here indicates that she is an unusually strong candidate to dramatically improve her reading comprehension. I agree. She can obviously read. She's not looking for the right things or something. Yeah, that's my that that's that's my thought is like, well, you clearly are a good reader. You can't be a bad reader and get minus two on it. Any section of logical reasoning. It's just not possible. Yeah. So you are a good reader. But there's something about the probably just not really understanding the questions in the reading comprehension. I agree. And I think that that's especially true for Taylor, but I think it's also true for other people who are even scoring maybe lower in logical reasoning and in reading comp. Can you considerably improve your score in three months? Yes. It won't get to a point maybe where it's a super high score, but it could definitely improve and maybe improve significantly uh, if you put the effort in. Yeah. I'd say it's the section that I have the least to say about, you know, I just, mm -hmm. uh, about which I have the least to say, but I, that doesn't mean you can't improve it. You, you certainly can, like you say, Ben, with practice, you can, you know, hard work practice, you can get a lot better at the reading comprehension. Um, but yeah, I, I, t I just think that Taylor is an especially good candidate for improving reading comprehension. Yeah, I agree. I think um, one thing here, not to belabor this point, but a lot of times people feel like reading comp is harder to improve. And so it becomes self-fulfilling, like people don't sure. really spend their time on it. It's uh, most people's scores are flipped. Of course, they have minus fourteen in games, and they have minus maybe seven in reading comp, or even minus two. And what happens is then they go after games, and they do games and games and games for weeks, and they don't really spend any time on reading comp. And then some at some point, their games catches up to the reading comp, and maybe even goes beyond it. Yeah. And they're in the habit of practicing games, and then they look at their reading comp, and they go, "Oh man." And my reading comp score hasn't changed much, or if at all. And wow, there must just not be anything I can do about it. Well, no, you just haven't done anything about it. Yeah, so yeah. that's why it's where it's at. But if you had treated reading comp like you treat the games, I would be surprised if you didn't see improvement. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think if you look at those 14 mistakes 
you know, you're going to, you're going to find, and, and if you do another section or, you know, do another test, do another test, do another test, you're going to find that you're making systematic, just repeated mistakes of the exact same type mm-hmm. on the questions. And I think if you sort those out, you're, you're going to just stop making those mistakes. There's one mistake that I'm almost certain Taylor is making. Yes. <clears throat> I thought maybe you'd predict it. Oh, <laughs> I thought it was a an invitation to ask. I'm what trying to set you up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to set myself up. <laughs> I think I think I saw your reply to this, which makes uh, a lot of sense. But it it was it must be true, right? Was that your thought on this? Well, one? that's that's my thought. Yeah, is that you know Taylor is clearly bright. She's she's used to figuring things out, right? She's used to being smart. She's used to figuring things out. On her mm-hmm. first practice test, she got a 160, right? That's, mm-hmm. you know, she's talented. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> there, are, there are those reading comprehension questions. I know I've talked about it on the show multiple times, but there are those reading comprehension questions that sound like which one of, you know, it can be inferred from the passage that the author would be most likely to agree with which one of the following. And on question stems like that, sometimes the highest performing students miss those questions because they feel like they're being invited to predict what the author would say next. And then they end up picking answer choices that are just a step further than what's actually justified by the passage. Mm -hmm. So that would be my number one tip for Taylor is like, look at your mistakes. If, if these are, treat them as if they were must be true questions, treat them as if the question stem just said, which one of the following must be true based on the passage? Yeah. Or which one of the following did the passage say? Yeah. And if you look at your wrong answers and ask yourself, did the passage say this? I think you'll find that what you've done is you've picked answers that are speculative, that are like going the next step of, oh, I, I, I know what you're going to say. Mm-hmm. But that's not what they're testing. They're testing your reading comprehension. Yeah. So your reading comprehension is just, hey, did you get the stuff that was actually on the page? And it's shockingly frequent that the correct answer will just be explicitly stated in the passage. Mm-hmm. So review your mistakes, obviously. And then I think you're going to see if you got minus 14, it's almost impossible to get minus 14 without picking answers that are like more than what the passage actually said. Yeah, no, I think that's a very excellent point because people sometimes read too much into the word infer, like you're saying, and they think they have to find something new and they're like, wait, this answer's too easy because it's already said here. Uh, the flip of that is you do have to be careful because uh, like you said, you can get an answer that must be true. So it's not explicitly stated, but it's something that, given what was explicitly stated, does absolutely 100% have to be true. Yeah. It, if someone from the LSAC is listening, I would love to know why they do that. The That question stem, it can be, you know, which one of the following can be inferred from the passage? Mm-hmm. They do this on logical reasoning, and they do it on reading comprehension. I, can they just change those to it must be which one of the following must be true? <laughs> because it's it's like 
I don't, are you rewarding people for taking a fancy LSAT prep class? I feel like I'm getting unjustly enriched by that question stem. So, you know, I'm like talking myself out of business, I suppose, but it just seems stupid that they're going to have this question type or question stem that is so easily misinterpreted even by the highest performing students. So I just don't understand what they're doing. And then it, it's even, it's doubly worse when they do the, that, which one would the author be most likely to agree with? Mm -hmm. Because that's not really what they're going for either, right? They, they don't want you to predict. They want to know if you comprehended the passage as written. And very frequently, the answer is going to be something that the author just said or necessarily implied. Yeah. But it's not like, oh, um, based on the type of person that I think this author is, you know, I can imagine that they would also believe this. But the way the question is worded, it's just like, I don't, it's, it doesn't make sense to me if they're testing reading comprehension, then why would they have these like trappy kinds of questions? That's mm -hmm. all I'm saying. Hmm. Yeah. I do have a small theory about that. I've thought about it in logical reasoning. I've want, uh, the instances in which the correct answer was verbatim, I mean, I, st I still get your broader point, but the, the answer, the, the instances in which the correct answer was verbatim seems like slim to none. Like it's restating what was said, but maybe the sentence uses like one different word or a slightly different word. And so in their mind, <laughs> it's an inference from that sentence, even though it's essentially the same sentence. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, I agree with you. The answer is not like a lot of times verbatim, but it's just synonyms. It means the exact same thing. Yeah. And if what they're testing is your comprehension, mm -hmm. then I, I don't know why they would have a trappy kind of question like that. It's just, it's because I, I can't tell you how many students I've said this to, and then they the, I just see the light bulb go on. They're like, mm -hmm. oh, mm -hmm. oh, that's that's all they mean? And I'm like, yeah. yeah, that's all they mean. They just want to know if you comprehended what the author said. Yeah. Oh, I thought they wanted me to like, f go on, fill in the blank, you know, take the next. No, that's not, that's never what they're asking. Mm -hmm. So I really don't know why they put it to you that way. Other than they want to reward people who had a fancy LSAT class. I, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't get it. So that's the ultimate goal, Ben, of the podcast is we're going to we're going to get we're going to ruin our own careers. How about that? That sounds like a good goal. I like it. I could go into gar gardening or something <laughs> like in episode 500. We're going to not have jobs anymore. People just like the listenership just keeps going down. It's like now <laughs> it's zero. Yeah. <laughs> yep. OK, good. Yeah. All right. Question two. Do you often see your students improve drastically in RC? Uh, I do, yeah. I mean, a lot of times it happens by, it's almost like it happens by osmosis. Um, they, we, we study so much logical reasoning, and they get so good at logical reasoning, especially the must-be-true question type. Mm -hmm. And when you get really good at the must-be-trues in logical reasoning, you start getting all of the reading comprehension questions right as well. Yeah. So we don't spend very much time on RC in class. Um, 
but you know, we do a passage here and there. Same thing with my private tutoring students. We'll do a passage here and there. And even though we don't spend very much time on it, um, people do improve a lot. I mean, of course, the students are still doing reading comprehension um, in their practice tests and whatnot. They're always doing uh, RC. But we don't talk about it a lot in class. And nevertheless, uh, people can improve. Yeah, a couple of semesters ago, I put together uh, a bunch of the the hardest reading comp passages from the older tests because I wasn't really sure what to do with them. Yeah, uh, I felt like hey, there's just a ton of reading comp out there, and sometimes people are saying, "Hey, should I read The Economist to improve my reading comp?" And I'm thinking. Mm. There's all these old tests. Why don't we go and cherry pick the hardest ones and just say, have at it with these. Yeah. And so that's uh, that book of 40. It turns out to be 40 uh, reading comp passages from the older test has been pretty helpful. And I think it's also helped people realize, hey, look, there's like more you can do with this section. You know, like at least even if even if there's not as much to say about it in class, just doing it over and over again and starting to get a sense of what they're going to ask you so that when you're reading the passage, you're like, yeah, I'm pretty sure they're going to ask about this word that they just quoted because that's a weird word and they love to ask about that sort of stuff. Uh, it can help you, you know, as well. Yeah. So the third question says, how would you suggest a self-study student practice reading comprehension with three months before the test? What are the best reading comprehension resources? Well, actually, so for a self-study student, I would say contact me and I'll give you, I'll send you that book of of reading comp passages because it's old tests, so it's not going to overlap with the tests that you should be taking. Um, and then I would say to definitely do blind review for the ones that you're not sure about in reading comp because, like you were saying earlier, the answer to all, well, almost all, if not all of the questions is somewhere in the passage. Well, I mean, to all of them, it's somewhere in the passage. It might be an inference, but it's it's somewhere in that passage. And if you can't figure it out, if you're not sure about that answer, maybe you couldn't be sure in time, but can you be sure now? Like reread that passage with that one question in mind and with that one answer choice or the two answer choices you're debating in mind, you've got to be able to find it. At least force yourself to try so that you can start doing it on your own before you know whether A is correct or D is correct. Best reading comprehension resources, I think I would just, like you say, just do old reading comprehension passages. I don't know that there are, there is not a book that I recommend in this situation. Do you recommend a book in this situation? No. Nope. Yeah. I, I mean, I have my tips uh, with some of them we've talked about before about reading sentences and being really clear about what it's saying and trying to anticipate where the author is going. I have been telling people a little bit more recently that I will often find myself reading a paragraph and then pausing for a half second. And it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that it's a paragraph necessarily. It's just that I will read a few sentences and then I'll stop and I'll sometimes go back at that point and sort of I'm reading a little bit of what I've already read to sort of clarify what I'm reading right now because things in the reading comp passage connect to each other. What was said earlier connects to what was said later. And sometimes 
I'm reading through the passage and I'll be in the third paragraph and I'll pause for a half second and then I'll go back up to the first paragraph and be like, wait a sec, they talked about this idea in this sentence and I'll reread that sentence and then I'll draw a connection in my mind between those two ideas. It's like I'm pulling the passage together. Whereas yeah. I think so many people are just reading moment to moment. You know, it's like, yeah, I get this tree, I get this tree, I get this tree, but they don't get the forest. Right. You have to get the trees to get the forest, but sometimes they, they just stop. They don't take that half second to sort of try to pull it all together. Yeah. And it makes the questions just so much easier, I feel like. Yeah. So for resources, Taylor, we're just recommending uh, do all the old tests, do all the old reading comprehension. Uh, that is it. Okay. Should we move on to uh, logical reasoning? Let's finish this up. So this is question 25 in section 2 of the June 2007 LSAT. Just Google June 2007 LSAT and it will come up. It's a PDF that you can download. We will go ahead and read this now. Uh, and then you can follow, You can either pause this and come back to it after you've done the question yourself or just follow along. Yep. Do you want to read the passage? Okay. Sure. It says, During the 19th century, the French Academy of Art was a major financial sponsor of painting and sculpture in France. Sponsorship by private individuals had decreased dramatically by this time. Because the Academy discouraged innovation in the arts, there was little innovation in 19th century French sculpture. Yet 19th century French painting showed a remarkable degree of innovation. All right, so already I'm mm -hmm. anticipating this question to be some sort of paradox question. What do you think? Yeah, it's going to be an explanation question for sure. Because there's, if you if you were following along, you you read that last sentence, which you know they give you a clue when they start with yet. But mm -hmm. yet, 19th century French painting showed a remarkable degree of innovation. Wait, what? Sculpture did not show innovation. Painting did show innovation. You said earlier that the sponsorship from private individuals has dried up, and the French Academy of Art was a major financial sponsor of painting and sculpture. But this academy is discouraging innovation in the arts. So why is there innovation in painting but not sculpture if this academy is a major sponsor of both? Yeah, doesn't make sense. So what do you usually do here? Well, I mean, I recognize, you know, read the question stem to confirm that it's going to be an explanation question. Which yep. one of the following, if true, most helps to explain the difference between the amount of innovation in French painting and the amount of innovation in French sculpture? during the 19th century. So yes, this is an explanation question or a paradox question. Our job is to understand the paradox mm -hmm. and then find a satisfying explanation to that paradox. Mm -hmm. So I think I've already said what the paradox is. Why is painting innovative and sculpture not yeah. if the French Academy of Art is a major financial sponsor of both and is discouraging innovation. Mm -hmm. And then I, I would make a prediction. I, I definitely don't remember the answer here, but I have, I have a prediction. Okay. What's your prediction? Well, I just noticed that it says the French Academy of Art was a major financial sponsor of painting and sculpture. Okay. It doesn't say that it's the only 
major financial sponsor. Sure. Or the only financial sponsor. It goes on to say sponsorship by private individuals had decreased dramatically. Mm-hmm. But I feel a trap there, which would be, and you know, this doesn't have to be the answer. There's not, it's not like this is the only possible explanation, but what Mm -hmm. if there's another sponsor that's not a private individual, but you know, a different school, Mm -hmm. the French university of art, Mm -hmm. right? If there's the French University of Art, separate from the French Academy of Art, if there's a French University of Art that's also sponsoring, and let's say it's just sponsoring painting, Mm -hmm. but it's encouraging innovation rather than discouraging innovation, Mm -hmm. that would be a, I think, perfect explanation for why there's innovation in painting, but not innovation in sculpture. Yeah. It fits with the facts. I didn't change the facts. I didn't go outside. You know, I didn't say, oh, well, there was this one private individual who still funded, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Although I guess even that would be possible here because it says that the sponsorship had decreased dramatically. So I suppose it's, it is even possible that there could be some one private individual who's still sponsoring painting. Yeah. But anyway, that would be a justification that would be a, a to me a satisfying explanation if there was a some other sponsor who was sponsoring just painting not sculpture and who was encouraging innovation yeah kid i don't know what what would you do is that similar to what uh, you yeah. probably have a different prediction but a similar process well so i don't force myself to come up with a prediction I don't much. either, but I, it, it just, that sprang to mind. It sprang to mind, yeah. yeah. So uh, what I do force myself to do is ask myself why, what, even though something else. And I think it's that last part that a lot of people leave off. Like they ask themselves, oh, why was pa- French painting um, so innovative? And I guess I would say, yeah, that's something that we're trying to answer here. But I'd want to know why was French painting so innovative even though uh, sculpture was not, and uh, there was this academy that's, you know, everything that you've talked about, but giving more money and at the same time discouraging, or at least a major financial sponsor, and yet at the same time discouraging innovation. Like, you need the other half of this that makes this a paradox. And I feel like a lot of times people get tunnel vision and they just focus on why is French painting innovative and then when they're going through the answers they may choose one that sort of could bolster the idea that french painting is innovative but doesn't really reconcile the the problem going on here or the you know the the difference between these two things yeah i think that is really important here is that we need an answer that gives you the difference between sculpture and painting Mm -hmm. right so it i don't think I would like an answer that was just like um, a lot of innovative painters moved into France in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. That would be a much better answer if it was many innovative painters moved into France in the 19th century and killed the innovative sculptors in (laughs) France. Right? Because then you would see a difference between painting and innovation. If, If it was just... Uh, a lot of innovative painters moved into France during the 19th century, 
-hmm. then you would be left with the question, well, wait, did these people not do sculpture or did, did sculptors, innovative sculptors not move into France into the, in the 19th century? Yeah. Cause you didn't really say, so it's just, it's not a full or satisfying explanation. Mm -hmm. I'd also kind of want this money thing explained a little bit because it's like, they both seem to be sponsored at least on the surface by this institution or this academy. And so it's like, why is the sponsoring affecting one, but not the other, you know? Or at least the desires of the sponsor not affecting one, but affecting the other. So. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it could also be something like um, painters never give a shit <laughs> and sculptors always do. <laughs> you know, pa uh, painters Paint can live Painters are cheaply. the ancestors of Nathan Fox. <laughs> yeah, right. Pa <laughs> painters can live cheaply and don't really need sponsorship while sculptors have expensive drug habits and need their sponsorship money. Yeah. Well, that would, that be, would do it, right? That would be a great answer on the LSAT. I'd love it. I don't have want murder and meth, drug addiction. Meth users on the LSAT or anything like that? No, that's too bad. I feel like they could get a lot more, you know, they could have more fun with it. Yeah, people might study more. They would. All righty. Well, yeah, so <laughs> answer choice A. Should I read this? Yeah. Okay, so answer choice A. In France in the 19th century, the French Academy gave more of its financial support to painting than it did to sculpture. Okay, what do you think about that? I think it makes maybe the paradox harder to understand. Yeah, that was my gut reaction too. I was like, this is gross. Because they gave more money to the painters and then they're like, oh yeah, do whatever you want. No, they're the ones discouraging innovation. It doesn't make sense. Yeah, this is a common type of wrong answer on an explanation question or a paradox question because it's on target mm -hmm. it just uh it, it just goes the wrong direction you know if, if you read a like oh here's the explanation well it's because uh the french academy gave more of its financial support to painting than it did to sculpture and i think you would have to the the only response would be yeah exactly so why are the painters still innovating even though their sponsor is telling them not to? Yeah. Okay, cool. B, the French Academy in the 19th century financially supported a greater number of sculptors than painters, but individual painters received more support on average than individual sculptors. Yeah, this yeah. doesn't make sense either because it's like in the end, the individual painters are getting more money. Wouldn't they be more beholden to the um, academy? I don't know. What yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, A and B seem actually really similar too. It's mm -hmm. like, hey, the French Academy has given the painters a lot of money. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, why? What? Why? Yeah. You know, if it's if I'm still asking why after I read the answer choice, then that's not the solution to this mystery. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Okay. See, because stone was so much more expensive than paint and canvas, far more unsponsored paintings were produced than were unsponsored sculptures in France during the 19th century. Boom. Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's a difference between sculpting and painting. Mm -hmm. And it would, it's a, you know, just commonsensically, it's like, hey, yeah, I know that the, sure, the French Academy was a major financial sponsor of painting and sculpture, and it's totally possible that all of those people who took that money were complete sellouts and did no innovation whatsoever. 
But if C is true, you would still have innovation in painting mm -hmm. because there are so many people who are not taking the sponsorship money. Yeah. Yeah, this makes sense. So keep it open. D, very few of the artists in France in the 19th century who produced sculptures also produced paintings. That's, I'm just, have a question mark here. You? Yeah, I would just be like, so? <laughs> uh, okay. I just, I'm, I'm, not be, I'm not trying to be a dick. I would just, my response to that, that answer is like, well, okay. But how does that explain why there's innovation in painting and not innovation in sculpture? Yeah. You, it's, you know, I'm just noticing how I'm doing it. I have that, the, the paradox, the thing that I need explained is just in the very front of my mind. Mm -hmm. You know, why is there innovation in painting and not innovation in sculpture? Yeah. And you read D and it's like, well, very few people did sculptures and paintings. And I, I just, there's nothing else I can say except for, yeah, so? Yeah. I, I asked a question and this is not answering it. I agree. Okay. E, although the Academy was the primary sponsor of sculpture and painting, the total amount of financial support that French sculptors and painters received from sponsors declined during the 19th century. <laughs> it makes me tired. It's like so many words. <laughs> it's all the words from the argument. Mm-hmm. It's all the right concepts, but all it is is a similarity between sculpture and painting. It's not a difference between sculpture and painting. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm very happy with C. Good. Let's pick it and be cool. done with that section. So we took uh, maybe five hours. We'd like <clears throat> accommodations for that section, and then maybe we could go to the next. Does that sound good? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we would have gotten them all right if we would have had five hours. <laughs> oh man, yeah. The next one is uh, logical reasoning as well. Looks like, and then section three. Yeah. yeah. Could we even do reading comp on the podcast? I don't think. We I think we maybe could. I, we, I think we should give it a shot. I think it would be worth. We did. Remember when we did a game? <laughs> yeah. I'm just afraid we're going to have like so many tangents. The whole passage is going to take us like the whole podcast. And then we'll be like, okay, now let's talk about the questions. Oh, well, we haven't finished it. Anyways, uh, yeah, okay, it's worth a shot. We should definitely try it because I'm sure people people are asking about it. And um, it is text. It is written. So we can share it and read it and reflect on it. I think that could be helpful, actually. Going through the section or the passage, and as we read each sentence, kind of telling people what we're thinking and how we're reacting to it. Because I don't think people engage with the text as much as they, they could or should. It could be awesome, dude. Let's do it in the next uh, in the next episode. We'll do one passage of, of reading comprehension from section yeah. four and see how it goes. Yeah, that'll be good. It'll take a lot of time to do the passage and answer all the questions, but that, that, that's okay. We got yeah. time. Yeah, or we could start, you know, we could do some of the questions and then follow up and then I guess yeah. the next one. Well, we'll see how it goes, I guess. Yeah, try it out. Well, great. That's Is that everything for today? I believe that is everything for today. I want to uh, encourage people to reach out to me if you're looking for an LSAT class in Los Angeles because I have one starting on July 12th, uh, downtown LA. It's going to be at the LA Athletic Club, which is uh, a really cool spot if anybody's ever been there. Um, it's going to be beautiful facilities, and the class right now only has three people in it, so it's going to be um, plenty of personal attention. My San Francisco class is like going to be full 
um, three weeks in advance. And my LA class, because I'm kind of just getting started down here, still has a bunch of uh, space available. So please reach wow. out to me if you would like a spot in my LA class. Yeah, that's a that's an opportunity. That's like one on one help with Nathan Fox. That's what I've been telling people. Yeah, I mean, I, it's fun. You've had bigger classes and smaller classes, right? But the, yeah. The smaller classes are cool because you you actually do get to, you know, really dig in to people with their individual questions a lot. So, yeah, 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 um, should be good. And I'm going to start starting in July. I'm going to be traveling all the time because I'm going to be going back and forth teaching the two classes simultaneously. So I'll see you on uh, Southwest Airlines if you're flying from Burbank to Oakland. Cool. Do you get like miles for that or is that? Not a thing anymore. Um, I've never like bothered to really register for that program, but I am sure I'm going to, you know, there'll be enough incentive for me to do that now. I like to drive a lot when I go back and forth, though, just because hmm. when you drive, it's boring. I mean, I-5 is the worst place in the world. Uh, you know, you go through Bakersfield, but you control your own destiny. You You leave when you want you know, yeah. just throw whatever stuff in the car. You don't have to really worry about packing for whatever. And um, it's a couple hours longer. Okay. What, what's the difference? Is it like five and seven, three it's and like five? Maybe four and six. Four and six. Okay. Yeah. Although, you know, I, when I drive, then I'll also like stop, like find a Starbucks and sit and work for an hour or whatever just to kind of get out of the car for a while. So you do it. But yeah, I mean, flying the flight itself is a breeze. It's like 55 minutes or whatever from Burbank to Oakland. Yeah. But all the airport stuff, you know, getting, getting there and getting through security and all that stuff. Somebody told me to get TSA pre-checked, yeah, which pre-checked, I didn't know normal yeah. people could do that. But Yeah, it costs like a certain amount per year, but if you're traveling, it's totally worth it, it seems like. Yeah. All right. Well, I think maybe that's about enough of... Yeah me for the day (laughs) okay uh (laughs) thank you nathan it was good talking to you as always and everyone out there please send us your questions at help at thinking lsat.com and um you can also tweet us at thinking lsat you can also post questions on the blog itself which is just thinking lsat.com we uh, try to answer emails as quickly as possible, although Nathan almost always wins. So um, just keep that in mind, although I'm getting better. So, yeah, you can also email us directly, Nathan at foxlsat.com or Ben at strategyprep.com. Thank you very much. I'm going to see the uh, space shuttle right now. That's what I'm doing today. The space shuttle? Yeah, the Endeavor. It oh, okay. lit, lives at the California Science Center which is in Los Angeles. So, um, yeah, I'm going to go uh, take a tour this afternoon. Of, of, I don't think you go inside, but I'm going to go uh, see the space shuttle. And apparently one of the giant booster rockets is there, too. So. Wow. So uh, the Endeavor, is that special for some reason? Which one did, what did they do with that one? Well, they just retired the space shuttle program, period. Oh, sorry. I, I get my news from you, Nathan. So Yeah. <laughs> no, the space shuttle is no longer a thing. And <laughs> by the way, <laughs> yeah, specifically the Endeavor, uh, which I don't know, they're, they're all, they all look the same. Everybody knows what the space shuttle looks like, right? But okay, um, it's a very 80s kind of a thing, yeah, yeah. The Endeavor is one of them, and that one now lives at the California Science Center, which I have never been to. Cool, 
but I'm going to go go check it out. So I'll report back on that next time. Great. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we will come back at you in episode 64 with some reading comprehension stuff, which that'll be, that'll be fun. Bye.